Lord, we just thank we thank for this great opportunity to meet together and to worship you and the word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word, show us what you would want us to see, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings chapter 16, we're continuing with, uh, with the story of Omri. Remember that uh, Omri killed the previous king, uh, chapter 16. And there was a civil war going on for a few years and that he finally got the kingdom. He bought the, the hill of uh, Samaria and built the city of Samaria there on the hill. And we're starting at verse 25 for tonight. But Amri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and in his sin wherein he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. Now the rest of the acts of Amri, which he did, and his, and his might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. All right, so we have Omri. He was the captain of the guard. He, he killed the previous king and was named king, had a battle. And it says that he was worse than all the other kings before him, uh, which means that he was pretty bad. All right, so he, you know, we, huh? Omri. Omri. Uh, so he's worse than Jeroboam. He's worse than Nadab, Basha, Elah, uh, Zimri. So he is worse than all of them in his evil. Wasn't Jeroboam really bad? Jeroboam was bad. He, he was given the kingdom with the promise that if he had followed God and walked in God's way, that his family would be a dynasty. So what's the very first thing he does is he establishes golden calf worship and this is what they say when they what they mean when he followed in the way of Jeroboam is that he was doing golden calf worship um, so he walked in the ways of Jeroboam and he made Israel to sin and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities and this is what happens the northern kingdom is going to have a long series of kings that are all evil, that are all walking in idolatry. They all have golden calf worship. Uh, one of them, if I recall, actually had some worship of God, but really didn't follow God because he still followed golden calf and everything. So he tried to mix God with everything else. And you know, we look at our world, and that's exactly what's happening in our world. People are taking God and mixing him with other other things, other religions, other gods. Uh, sometimes they're just making up their own version of God, and that's what happened to these kings. They kept making their own version of God and declaring basically, and when you do that, what you're really doing is saying, I am God. All right? You may be pointing to somebody else, but if you're the one that chooses the God and chooses how to worship that God, you are saying, I am God. And this is what has happened over and over in this in this uh, kingdom and God calls it all vanity he calls emptiness and we need to be very careful that we are following God because it's easy for even us to kind of get our own thought of what God is like and who he is and what he does 
And we need to make sure that our, the vision we have of God is centered in the Word of God. And then when we find something in the Word of God that contradicts what we think about God, we turn to the Word and say, am I understanding it right? And believe what the Word says. And this is something very important. I've said it over and over. You know, I never want to read Baptist doctrine into the Bible. I never want to read, you know, Assembly of God. You know, no matter what, I don't want to read my doctrine into the Word of God. I want the Word of God to speak for itself. And if my doctrine is bad, I alter my doctrine. All right? Now, I've been walking with God, studying with God. Most of my doctrine is going to be very hard to change because I've studied a long time. But every once in a while, God will show me that I don't quite believe right in some area, and I have to adapt what I believe to what the Word of God says. And this is very important for us, because you'll hear people out in the world, well, God is love. That means that God is love. He wouldn't send anybody to hell. Well, I agree with him. God never sends anybody to hell. He gives them what they chose. They choose hell, he gives it to them. All right? And his love demands that they choose him if they want to follow him. And true love says, I'm not going to make you spend eternity with me when you don't want to spend eternity with me. You know, if God made the sinner uh, go, to, go to eternity with him, that would almost be hell for that person. To have to go worship God for eternity when they didn't want to have anything to do with him, that would be awful. So God says, fine, you didn't want anything to do with me, then you can spend eternity without me doing anything for you. And then they'll realize how much God had done for them. And this is the beauty. God is always reaching out to the lost world. Now we as his children, we recognize that he's reaching out to us. And we see his gifts when we're focused on him. But God is always reaching out even to the lost and saying, I've given you these gifts. I'm giving you these, this grace. I'm giving you this blessing. Turn to me. Follow me. And sometimes his blessings and stuff are pretty hard, but usually he's very kind. He doesn't give people what they deserve right, all, right away. If God gave every lost person what they deserved right away, they'd be dead. They wouldn't even have lasted as long as they did, however long they last. You know, and this is the, the thing we have to understand. And when bad things happen to people, you'll always hear them say, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the problem is, in God's sight, there are no good people. We are all evil, wicked, wretched sinners. So the real question is, why does good things happen to all of us bad people? And, you know, and this really, if we can get our mind wrapped around the idea that I deserve nothing from God, even as his child, I deserve nothing from God. It's all his grace that I get anything from him. Then it changes the whole way I think. Now, he's promised to do things for us. He's promised to bless us. He's promised to give, give us peace. But he has not promised us a rose-colored, you know, rose garden and, and all happiness. He says, I'm going to meet your needs. And in all my life, God has always met my needs. Now, he hasn't given me much more above my needs often, and other times he's given me great blessings way above my needs, and it's just sitting back and saying, God, you are God, and trusting him. Omri's not there. Omri is leading people way down the wrong path. He's, he's going further and further away from God, and the sad thing is when your leaders are against God, the nation will go against God. 
We're seeing it even in our country. Our leaders are not godly people for the most part, and we're seeing the direction of our country is taking. And unless God has a miraculous revival in this war in our country this country is is going to be judged and penalized because of all the sin that we're headed in and this is what we're seeing in kings a long series of kings that, that some of them reign for a while 20 30 years but they end up dying and the reason they end up dying god says is because they led the people the wrong direction Oftentimes, oftentimes we feel the same thing. You know, God does not necessarily exempt us from the punishment of the world, in, but he does give us some marketing. He doesn't usually make it as bad, all right? But we will suffer. When the children of Israel and Judah went into captivity, Daniel and his three friends went into captivity. They were good, godly people, and yet they went into captivity. Joseph was sent into captivity and into being a slave and then being a prisoner before he was raised up. All right? Now God will use his people if we stay faithful, even though we are in the midst of trials and, and, and tribulations, we stay faithful, we will be raised up to be looked at as leaders at some point or martyred or lifted up in a way that people look at us. And this is the thing. We stand faithful during hard times and people look at us and say, their first thought is, these guys are crazy. How can they be happy? How can they be joyful with all this trouble? But the, the, if you stay faithful, they start looking at you and going, I wonder what it is they have. And they will turn to you and, and start asking questions. They will look and say, I don't know why you can have a smile on your face. I don't know how you can stay, stay happy with all this craziness going on around us. And that's our opportunity to lift God up in front of them. Daniel's opportunity was, we're not going to eat the king's food, you know, let's try to make a deal. All right? Then they're getting ready to kill all the wise men, and, and Daniel's saying, well, hey, what's the, what's the rush? What's going on? Because they were going to get killed, but they hadn't been called to give the interpretation. And he says, well, God will give us the interpretation. Get, can you get the king to give us, you know, 24 hours so that we can get the, talk to God and get the answer? God will raise us up, and yes, sometimes we will die, sometimes... But where our death should be with, just as we saw in, with everybody else who died, there's joy. There's peace. You know, on our lips, hopefully, will be Jesus' words, just like they were on Stephen's, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that will irritate people. <laughs> you know, telling people, if you don't know what to say when you're witnessing to somebody, the greatest thing you can say is, Jesus loves you or God loves you. That impacts people, especially if they know you mean it. If you can say it with full meaning, God loves you. You're going to hear all kinds of things. Well, you, you know, God, no way God could love me. But if you can mean it and they'll know that you mean it, they'll, it'll impact people. There have been hundreds, if not thousands or millions of people whose only thing that has led them to God is the fact that God loves them. If you're talking to somebody in any other religion and you tell them that God loves them, that is something totally foreign to them. 
And if you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu and you say that God loves you, they do not understand an idea of God loving you. And this is something we as Christians have to really get into our heads because there's a lot of Christians who don't think that God loves them. I don't know how they can be Christian and not believe that God loves them because God sent Jesus to die for us. But in practice, there are a lot of people who I'm sure are Christians that just don't believe that God loves them. And it's a powerful thing. When you really understand that God loves you, he loves us so much that he died for us, and not just died for us, he cares for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, and then he leads us into the, the valley of the shadow of death. He prepares our table in the presence of our enemy. God loves us and cares for us in the most minute details of our life. And the more we can learn that God loves us and trust him, the more that will shine out to other people, and the more we will stand up as a light in front of people that say, I have something you don't have. And the world does not understand a God of love. They just don't understand it. Most people have this picture of God, and that if I do enough good, I might get accepted. And a lot of people even have this idea that God is just up there waiting with a big baseball bat or lightning bolts or whatever you picture him holding, waiting for you to stick your head out of the shelter so that he can smack you. What a sad way of living. That is not God's picture for humanity. God created man in his image and says, I love you. You have fallen, but I still love you. And I want to bless you. He's the prodigal, the, the prodigal son's father waiting for us to return. And not just waiting for us to get back there, but seeing us at a distance and running to meet us. <laughs> this, this is the funny thing. God is waiting to, for us to make the first move. And then he will meet us more than halfway with acceptance. This is the beauty of what goes on. You know, we sing the song Amazing Grace. When, when you think about that, that song was written by John Newton. He was a slaved, slaver. He transported slaves. He was an angry, bitter man. He was a drunkard. He was, he was a mean person. And when he got saved, he understood God's amazing grace, which is why amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He knew what a grace was. He knew how much God loved him. We need to really understand how much God loves us and the grace that he gives us that is just so overly abundantly, you know, above anything we can think of or desire. And we want to share that. We can never get to the place where somehow I've walked with God long enough that God, you're just so lucky you have me. We have to always remember we are there by grace. Even if you get saved at a young age like I did, I am still here by God's grace. There was no reason he should have saved me even when I got saved, and there's no reason he should have saved, kept me saved in all the years since. And we need to understand grace. If Omri, if, if uh, Jeroboam, if uh, Zimri, if any of them had repented of their sins and turned to God, God would have given them grace. But because they did not repent, they had to pay the ultimate price and they died because of their sin. 
God does bring death to people for their sin. Even for Christians, if we choose to continuously sin and not listen to his call to repentance, he'll take us home early because he's not going to have his name dragged through the, through the mud if we refuse to repent. These men all did not repent. They did not follow God. Then God says, you are going to die. And then we have, as we've said before, it says, all of his acts, are they not written in the Chronicles of the King of Israel? We do not have that book, so don't go looking for the Chronicles of the King of Israel. So um, I think we have excerpts out of those books in here, but I don't think we have the whole, we don't have the whole book. Do they exist? Somewhere probably, <laughs> if, they, if they haven't rotted away. Uh, some some uh, archaeologists someday will go digging through and find the palace archives and the records and find, find records of these and, and spend the rest of their life going through the, the acts of these kings. But uh, the average person's not going to be interested in these records in the first place. All right, verse 29. Uh, oh, verse 28. Uh, Omri slept with his fathers, in other words, died. He was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, raised, raised it, was raised in his stead. So verse 29. And in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been, been, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he took to took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonites, Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up the altar for Baal and the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So, Omri already had the reputation of being the worst king ever. And then comes along Ahab. And Ahab is even worse. All right? And this is going to be the routine all through Israel. And Ahab is an awful king. And we get a lot of his story because the next couple chapters are going to be talking about Elijah. All right? Elijah all of a sudden pops on the scene. He's a prophet. And we get the rest of the book is going to talk about Elijah and Ahab is going to be in and out of the story of Elijah. All right. And then the second Kings will be all will start all about Elisha. So uh, and we have several chapters about Elisha and then we start talking about the Kings again. Uh, so all of a sudden in the middle of both of these at the end of the one book and the beginning of the other book, we have the two great prophets that God has in that in that day show up. And they are the center figures of the book. Uh, I have this feeling that either Elijah or Elisha probably wrote the books. But because they're a history of the kings, they had to put everybody in. And then they had their lives come in. And then somebody finished off after Elisha for the rest of it. I can't prove that because all of a sudden these guys become central. And you have Elijah. And then Elisha was his disciple and followed after Elijah. Elijah, Elijah, and Elisha. If you want to ever remember which one's which, 
The, the J is lower in the alphabet, he's first. Elijah is first, and then Elisha follows. <laughs> That's how I remember the J and the S. All right? Um, so we have Ahab coming into power. He's going to reign for 22 years, leading Israel the wrong direction. And we're going to find out that he was terrible because he is persecuting the believers in God. All right? And we're going to see that as we get into Elijah's responses back there. Because there's going to become a point where Elijah says, I'm the only prophet. I'm the only one that's following you, God, in this whole country. And God is saying, no, you're not. <laughs> okay? And if you ever feel like I'm the only one worshiping you, God... You're going to hear the same words from God. No, you're not. I've got a remnant. God always has a remnant of believers. Always. Always has, always will. All through the Old Testament, we see a remnant of believers following him. During the dark ages, when the Catholic Church was persecuting anybody who didn't believe their way, God kept a remnant of Bible-believing Christians all through those 400 years of the dark ages uh, so that there were believers. There was always a core. Uh, there's always a core. There will always be a core of believers all the way to the rapture when God takes his church out. And then after he takes his church out, he raises up 144,000 believing Jews to be his witness during the tribulation period. So he will still have a remnant of believers teaching the truth. There's always a remnant of believers that are teaching the truth, that are following God, that are lifting God up. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but there's always true believers because God is not going to let truth die. So we want to understand that in Ahab and Jezebel really do decimate the, Christian, uh, the Christians, the Jewish believers during their reign. They really make a hard time for them, and they're persecuting the, the, the true Jewish believers, the true God believers, during their time. And so we're going to see that problem as we go along. Ahab, it says in verse 30, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than everybody before him. And remember, we just had Omri have that same reputation, and before that we had the king had that same reputation. You know, each king is getting worse. They're topping each other for who can get more evil. And, you know, that happens even in our day and age. It seems like every generation gets how much more evil can we get. Are they doing it on purpose? I don't think so. It's just when you start doing wrong, each generation gets deeper and deeper. And we see this with families. A family will live in sin and follow sin, and their children will get worse than their, their parents. And then the grandkids will be worse than the the grandparents were, and the next generation gets worse. And unless God comes in and breaks that cycle, it keeps getting worse. Our country abandoned God six, 60 years ago or so. We started abandoning God, and we have been getting worse and worse as a country. More evil, more violence. Every, every time we turn around, they, it's kind of funny. We read the papers, and, we, and they're looking at the violence that's going on in today's world, and they compare it to the 60s. And they're trying to make it sound like the 60s were just as bad. And the 60s were bad, 
but the 60s were nothing compared to the violence that's going on now. The, the, the riots in the street were against each other pretty much and some businesses, but they didn't spend weeks destroying the downtown areas of city. They just, they rioted for a day or two and, not, and didn't do near as much damage and attacking as they're doing now. This is a really evil time and it's funny how they justify what they're doing. You know, and you look at it and going, two wrongs do not make a right. And you know, they keep pointing back to Martin Luther King Jr. He would be appalled at what they're doing today. He was man that says, we are going to live by peace. We're going to let God stand in, in God's righteousness. And his whole idea was he wanted everybody to be equal. He did not want groups being favored. And that's what the whole new movements are. Now, we have been abused for so long, we deserve to be favored. And that is against the Bible's principles, and it is against his principles. Even though they keep calling on his name, they are not standing for what he stood for. And this is important for us to understand. We keep getting worse. Our job as Christians, lift up God's standards. Lift up God's standards. Be loving. Be kind. Lift God up. Because Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Our job is to lift him up. Always. And keep lifting him up. And keep lifting him up. And show people love. And show people kindness. Even when they keep doing things that does not deserve it. And you know, that's the hardest thing. When you lift him up, Jesus said... If somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And he's basically saying, you keep being kind to people even when they're being, abus when they're being abusive and they're causing problems. Does that mean we just stand there and take all the stuff? No, there are times when we have to stand and say no more. But we also have to say, God, when is that time? A lot of times it is just stand back and let God be our defense. It is amazing what God will do when we let him be our defense and watch him change people's hearts, change lives, and when we step back and stay out of the way. God can cause a revival in our country. Our job is to pray for it. Our job is to re get a revival amongst our churches and then live that revival, revived life out in front of people so that they will be converted and changed. And this is where it's important. When people's lives get changed by God, it will work its way everywhere else in our, in our country. It's going to be a long process. Revivals don't start overnight. They don't, but they do start in the hearts of God's people. We need to be revived. We need to be turned over to God. And then we live out a life that's different. And we totally bring God into all aspects of our life. We bring him into our work. We bring him into the way we vote. We bring him into the way we treat people. And we, we have a life that is totally different for people to see. And then people look at it. And you know, like I said, I've said this often. You know, they look at us as if we're weird because we are. You know, Jesus was very different from everybody else in his day. They looked at him and he talked about forgiving people. He was kind to people. He didn't judge people for their sins. He loved them and said, God forgives. That was not what the scribes and Pharisees did. That's not what the, what the priests did. 
if you weren't actively being good, you weren't worth being talked to. And unfortunately, many Christians have that attitude about the lost world. Well, you're lost. I don't have anything to do with you. When you get saved, I'll talk to you. Well, how are they going to get saved if we don't talk to them? <laughs> All right? Our job is to get out in the world and talk to people and bring them to the love of God. Jesus did all kinds of crazy things. He talked to tax collectors. All right? We have several tax collectors that God, that God talked to. Now, we kind of go, well, well, so what's the big deal of being talking to a tax collector? Well, even in our day, tax collectors are not, you know, the IRS representatives are not who you're going to want to go run to. But in their day, it was even worse. All right? These were Jewish citizens that bought the right to collect taxes from Rome and what they would do is they made an agreement that they were going to send Rome a certain amount of money. If they could collect more than that amount of money from people and they had the whole power of Rome to do so, right, they, had, they had soldiers behind them. If they said this person owes money, the soldiers went and collected that money. So if they owed a quarter of a million dollars to Rome and they collected a half a million or a million, they got to keep everything above the quarter of a million that was to go to Rome, was theirs. They had incentive to go out and collect more money, and they did. All right? And they did. So Jesus talked to tax collectors. And we know of at least one that got converted. He wrote a book of the Bible, Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. His original name was Levi. He was a tax collector. Levi. Yep. So you'll see him referred to as Levi in, in a couple places. Now, also amongst Jesus' Jesus's followers was, was uh, Judas the Zealot. Not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the Zealot. Now, the zealot was on the exact opposite side of the tax collector, compromiser with Rome. They were, we would call them terrorists. They caused as much problem for Rome as they could. They would blockade roads. They would you know, dig up roads. They would you know, cause problems. They would use the equivalent of bombs, whatever, whatever their equivalent was, and they caused problems. So amongst Jesus' disciples, you have a, a sellout... <laughs> tax collector and a zealot on the other side and you can you could just picture the arguments those two had together you know if Jesus wasn't around they would be battling with each other Jesus talked to women all right very an unusual thing for to be done by a Jew uh, it was not right to talk to women not to not even to talk to them with a group around you you weren't supposed to talk to them and then let's take it to the woman at the well in Samaria. He had sent the disciples away. And a woman came to the well in the middle of the day, which is an unusual time to come to the well, which meant that she had a reputation. Uh, she was not respected amongst town. And we know that, you know, what he tells us. And Jesus talked to her. She's a woman and he alone. She obviously has a reputation because of when she's there. And she's a Samaritan. She had three strikes against her for a man, for a Jewish man to talk to her. And Jesus talks to her. You know, Jesus went out of his way to meet people that 
everybody else did not want to have anything to do with. He met with the blind, the blind and healed them. Most people ignored the blind. They had a handicap. They're, they were worthless. They didn't, they didn't earn an income. They, they were begging all the time. Even worse, he, he touched lepers. You know, lepers were to start yelling unclean when you were 100 feet away from them. And, you were, and they were to stand downwind of you so that you didn't get the disease. And you were definitely not to touch them. And Jesus would go up to them and touch them and, and heal them. Jesus purposely went out of the way to help those in need. In the first and second century, there were reports of the Romans that would, there'd be plague in a city, and they're abandoning the city, and they would, there, there were reports from the Roman centurions and officers saying, the city is cleared out of all people that are healthy except for a group of followers of the way who keep going in <laughs> to minister to the people. You know, the church has had this habit of going to see the people that are the greatest in need, the, the sick, the ones that, that may even cause you to die. All right? Why? Because we know where we're going. It's not hard for us to go. What's the worst thing that can happen to us is that they almost kill us. All right? Best thing is they, they kill us and we go to heaven. So our job is to go reach the ones that can't, that don't seem to want to be reached, to go out. And I hate it when I see, hear people, well, if they have a desire to, to turn, I'll go see them. Well, how are they going to have the desire to turn to God if they have not heard about God? And this is important. And it's an amazing thing sometimes when you go to these people that look like they have absolutely no desire to, to know God and you start talking to them about God. I've talked to people homeless in the street and told them about Jesus and seen their response. I have approached people that look like bikers and watched them when we just talk about how much God loves them, having them break down and just in tears. Now, I've had some get puffed up and get, get aggressive. But, you know, our job is just to share the gospel and be able to reach and let God sort out all of this. And Omri is leading the people the wrong direction. He did evil above all things. And then verse 31 says, And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the city sins of Jeroboam. So if it was just, you know, as if it was light to walk in all this sin. Uh, he married Jezebel. <laughs> now, we're going to get to know a little bit about Jezebel. Nobody calls their kids Jezebel if they know anything about the Bible. Jezebel was one of the wickedest queens recorded in the Bible. All right? So nobody calls their kids Jezebel. Now, they might take the name Jezebel if they're an evil, wicked person, but Jezebel is not a name you give your kid. <laughs> uh, and Jezebel brought him into Baal worship. All right, so he builds a temple to Baal, and because that is who she wants to worship. And then, if that wasn't enough, in verse 32, he raised in verse 33, he raised a grove, and as we've talked about that, the grove represents Astoroth worship, which is a big totem pole, and these totems were sexually graphic in the female side of things mostly. And the worship of the, the Astoroth was with orgies. <laughs> That's how they worshipped uh, Astoroth. It was, Astoroth was a fertility god. 
Baal was also worshipped with orgies because he was the power god and the for, for fertility. So he's bringing in all of these things that are totally against God's way of doing it. You know, it's bad enough that they bring in idols in, but now they're bringing in sexual sins with it. And their sexual sins were not just heterosexual worship uh, of their gods. It involved just about every perversion of sex that you can think of was part of their worship. So he's bringing the people completely down into the muck of sin and leading them there. And the people are going to follow them for the most part. And they're going to have this really big problem. And God is saying, okay, Ahab, you continued golden calf worship, and that was bad. But even if you remember in Exodus, when Aaron makes the golden calf, the thing that Moses walked down into was the same thing. It seems that virtually every form of idolatry worship ends up following into sexual immorality in their worship. When Moses came off the mountain, off Mount Sinai, he heard the people, he thought there was a war. Their revelry and their, and their uh, sexual sins were so bad that it angered him. That he, so much so that if you remember, he broke the Ten Commandments that God wrote in his anger. Moses had a big problem with anger. He was not a, he was not a quiet, gentle man. He had a lot of problem with, with anger. Uh, if you remember, the whole reason he could not go into the, into the promised land is because God said, speak to the rock. And he pictured God as being ang angry with them and struck the rock again. And the good thing is God had grace on the people and he gave them water. But he told Moses, you're not going into the promised land. And as I've said, I truly believe it was because Moses never repented. Because if you read from that point, Moses is always telling the people, it's your fault that I'm not going into the promised land. He never humbled himself and repented of his sin. He always blamed them. If he had humbled himself and repented, he probably would have gone into the promised land. But God knew that he was not going to humble himself and repent, so his punishment was to not go into the promised land. And so this is something that is very important. We need to humble ourselves. When we do something wrong, we need to humble ourselves before God, confess our sin, and agree with him and come into fellowship. This is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. You know, and we do not lose our salvation because of our unconfessed sins. We lose fellowship with God. And if you've ever been in a place where you know that you're sinning and you have not confessed, what is the last thing you want to do? You do not want to read your Bible. You do not want to pray. You don't want to go to church because you know that God might speak to you at those places. And what's he going to say to you when you're in, in a sinful condition? You need to repent. And we already know we need to repent, so we don't want to hear it. So when we confess and say, God, I have sinned, I am so sorry, I repent, then he brings us back into fellowship. And this is why it's so important. When we're out of fellowship with God, confess. God is not up there waiting to use a baseball bat on us and beat us over the head and punish us for it. He says, my son took the punishment for that sin. I forgive you, I'm going to give you grace, and I'm going to bring you right back into fellowship. 
These men do not do that. They do not bring in, come back into fellowship. Ahab is bringing in golden calf, which is Jeroboam's. He's bringing in Baal worship. He's bringing in Astoroth worship, and probably every other worship that goes along with it. It wouldn't surprise me if I didn't say it if he brought Gamesh and all these other gods of the area into it because he says he did more than any other king of Israel before him. So he's going to bring in all of this idol worship and the people are following him into the pit of hell. They're just following him. Well, king says this is okay. We're just going to keep doing it. You know, and we understand that the leaders start leading and, and people just automatically follow. And this is so critical that we lift up Jesus. We lift up, and, there's, and as we become more and more of the remnant of God, our light shines brighter because we are different. Our light shines brighter when we won't go out and party with everybody on Friday and Saturday night, when we're not going around sleeping around every, every night of the week, when we're not telling lies to justify what we're doing, when we go out to the workplace and we actually work, whether the boss is watching us or not, and we do our job, and they look at us and go, why are you working so hard? And I get that all, why do you, do, why do you work so hard? Yeah. You know, because I'm working for God. You know, well, they don't pay us, and I don't care, I'm working for God. God pays me in the long run. Well, they don't, you know, they're not watching you, you should don't have, I don't care, I'm working for God, God sees me. You know, and we hold a different standard in front of people, people notice. And again, they'll think we're weird, they'll think we're strange, but that is our goal. We are to be different from the world. We light a candle and we, our light is lit on, on, and God says we put it on a candlestick and we hold it up high because that's Jesus. And people are drawn to the light. And the good thing about light is you can see light from a long ways away in a dark, dark area. And the darker the world gets, the brighter our light will appear. Uh, we've talked about this in the past. In the military world, a lot of people died when they went to light a cigarette. Because all of a sudden there'd be a flash of light and then there'd be that red glow and they'd get, in, they'd get a bullet, bullet in the head. Because they forgot they were in a battle zone and they forgot that a light shines. Many people get rescued at nighttime because they just light a fire and that fire is seen from a long ways away. Uh, we've been around for, you know, uh, wildfires around here. I remember several years ago when the fires were up on the Sarabats. And they didn't actually come over the ridge, but we could see the glow of that fire from Kingman all the way on the top of Sarabat. Uh, Wallapies, excuse me. Um, you know, I've seen even around here as I drive up at late at night, there's all kinds of new buildings and stuff going up on the hill because you can see the lights. And I don't know if they're miners or what, what they're going on up there, but there's, there's people that are putting things up there and you're seeing lights up in the hill that are a long ways, you know, good ways away, but that light shines in the darkness. That is how we are supposed to be when we follow God. Our light shines and people see it. And they want to find out what is the reason for that light. What happened to Moses out in the wilderness when he saw the burning bush? He saw a bush. It wasn't, it wasn't being consumed. The fire, I don't know how long he watched that fire. He goes, it's just one bush. It's not spreading. And that bush isn't disappearing. And it brought his curiosity. And he says, I've got to go see what's going on here. 
when we have that light in front of people, people will look at us, and when it, be, when it stays bright, it stays lit, people will come up and say, I just have to f investigate this. I have to know. Now, does that mean they're going to convert? No, it just means they're going to look for what we have. But it also means they're in the state of wanting to convert because they're looking for something different. Oftentimes, when people start opening their mouths, you're going to watch them get saved eventually, usually fairly quickly, because their curiosity has been piqued. And we just lift up Jesus. And then again, it's again in verse 33, it repeats, And Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than all the kings before him. So God repeats it twice in his case. So Ahab is really not a good man. And we're going to see a lot more because Ahab and Elijah run over the same period of time. And we're going to see a lot more about Ahab and what he does as we look at the life of Elijah for the last part of this book. And then in verse 33 of 34, we end, we end this chapter with a little sentence and says, In the day, in his days, did Heel, the Bethelite, build Jer Jericho. He laid the foundation therein in Abirim, his firstborn, and set up the gates therein with his youngest son, Sirgab, according to the word of the Lord, which was spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And you're going, what the heck is this all about? Well, we're going to turn to Joshua chapter 6. Huh? Joshua, the sixth book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua 6. And we're going to look at verse 26. This is after the battle of Jericho. Rahab's been rescued. They've, the city has fallen. They've conquered the city. Joshua 6, 26. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set the gates thereof. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. So Joshua, when, the, when Jericho fell, said, this city is cursed. Whoever tries to build this city, when they raise up the foundation of this city, their oldest son will die. When they raise up the gates of the city, their youngest son will die. This was given 500 plus years before the reference in 2 Kings that talks about this man who rebuilds Jerusalem, uh, Jericho. What a beautiful thing. When God gives a prophecy, this prophecy is very exact. Very exact. He says, you lay the foundation, your oldest son dies, you put the gate, and your, young, uh, your oldest son dies at the foundation, your youngest son dies with the, the gate. You cannot enter, enter, uh, put anything else in there. If somebody had been able to build Jericho without this happening... It would have been a false prophet, prophecy and the Bible would be worthless. So we see in 2 Kings 16, and I love just how it gets put, just stuffed in there, just stuffed in there so that, that if you really have to be paying attention to it to even see that it has been a fulfilled prophecy. And that's when he comes in and he says that he, uh, he, Hael, 
builds, rebuilds Jericho. Now, did he not know the prophecy? Did he not care about the prophecy? Did he not believe God? I don't know. He's from Bethel, which is in the center of, uh, in the central north part of Israel. So he may not have cared about the prophecy. He may have been forgetful. It may not have been taught over the years. It is very, very interesting because even in America now, it is amazing how many people do not know any stories from the Bible. Okay, when I was growing up, everybody knew the, the chief stories of the Bible. It was, you know, and you knew most of them. You know, not even, not even the, big, the big ones. You knew almost all of them. In today's world, most people don't even know Noah and the ark. They don't know the, the fall of Jericho. They don't know David killing Goliath. They don't know about the Bathsheba and, and, and David and Uriah. They don't know the stories of the Bible, and it is so sad. This man may not have known the stories. All he saw was, hey, there's a nice piece of property over there. It's near the river. It's flat. It would be a good place for a city. And he decided to rebuild this city. It could be that he just didn't believe the word of God. Maybe he knew the story and just didn't believe that it would happen. I think that he probably didn't know the story because he continues after his firstborn was dead and, lost and loses his youngest child. And it says he built Jericho and they named his son. Abraham, his firstborn, died when he laid the foundation. And then his youngest son, Segub, what a name, <laughs> died when he put up the gates. He rebuilt Jericho, the cursed city, and it cost him the lives of his sons, or two of his sons. We don't know how many other sons he had. We don't know if he lost all of his sons, but he lost two, the oldest and the youngest. And the oldest child is almost always special. It's the one that carries the name, and usually people are excited. This is my firstborn. The youngest always is excited, too, because they're the, the last. <laughs> they're the last, and you're usually excited about the youngest. The, and being an oldest, I'll say, that, I'll say it, because the youngest is always spoiled. <laughs> or almost always spoiled. Uh, and so the two special children are lost to this man because he builds, his, builds uh, Jericho. This one, I think, was built right, with the, right on the site of the Jericho. Uh, they had built another Jericho further up and away from this. But this one, because there would be no reason to, just, just because I named it Jericho, wasn't building on the site that, that uh, Joshua had said. So, and we don't know, I don't know on this one, I don't remember if this city had stayed very long or if it was redestroyed again or not, but I do know there's a Jericho that's not in the same place. Uh, and that's not uncommon. There's many, many cities out there that are renamed after each other. Uh, even in Jerusalem and, and the Palestine area right now, there's cities that are named the same place. And even in America, we have cities that are named the same place. You know, if you talk about Portland, everybody's going to think about a different Portland. Okay, the two big Portlands are one in Maine and one and one in Oregon. But there's there's other Portlands throughout the throughout the country. Um, you know, so we, we have this habit, and it happened even there. So is there possibly more than one Jericho? Probably. But this Jericho was built on the site of Jericho, and the curse fell upon him that was pronounced 
by Joshua and the prophecy. And we want to keep this in mind. When the Bible talks about prophecy, there's enough fulfilled prophecy in the Bible that we know that anything that's not fulfilled yet will happen. And this is the beauty of it because we're looking at a time where prophecy is starting to be fulfilled. Israel just had Jerusalem placed back into the full control of the Israelites and made their capital and recognized as their capital by several large countries, mainly the United States. We recognized Jerusalem as their capital and other countries followed instead of Tel Aviv because Jerusalem has always been the capital of Israel and it's where they wanted the capital and we see that happening. We, see, we saw Israel come back to be a nation after being gone for, for 1,900 years, or 1,800 years, excuse me, because it was almost 100 AD when they were wiped out, and they came back. We're seeing the world get so evil that good is being called evil and evil is being called good. We're getting to the place where we're seeing idol worship coming back in, in full force. We're seeing the everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, just as Jesus said. We are seeing many, many wars. Over the last 120 years, we have had very large wars that have taken more lives in the 19th century wars than took on all the wars in, combined in just our wars in the 19th century. And God, Jesus said there'll be wars and rumors of wars. And when we talked about that in the past, there are rumors of wars and there are wars, depending on how you define war, there are wars going on, two to three hundred of them right now. That are people, when they define a war, where more than two or three hundred people die in the conflicts. There are two to three hundred wars right now going on in this world. And there's more and more rumors of wars all the time. We are right in the middle of what was predicted. How much more time do we have? I don't know, but God can come back at any time to take his church. I believe that we're going to suffer before that happens, so I don't believe it's today, but it could be. There's no reason why it can't be other than I believe that we will have some suffering before, before it's over. But we are already starting to see suffering. Christians are dying by the millions every year in this world just because they're Christians. Uh, there are places in the world where a Christian's lifespan is between six months to a year once they convert. We don't understand that. It's never reported in the papers. You have to be looking at Voice of the Martyrs and different groups that are reporting the deaths of people. Very rarely does it hit the, hit the newspaper. About, what was it, 10, 12 years ago when the Egyptian Coptic Christians were executed on the beach and it was put on the, it was put on the news. That was not an unusual thing. It happens all the time in the Muslim countries. All the time, Christians lose their life. That one just happened to hit the life and shock, shock the world that it was going on, but it is not an unusual thing. It happens over and over again where Christians are being executed just for being Christians. We have been very fortunate in America up till now. Times are changing. We are going to be the target of attacks probably soon. And we need to be ready. The Bible prophesies that it's going to happen. We need to be ready to speak just as the disciples. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
and show God's love to them. Jesus said it. Stephen said it. You know, several of our, of our uh, apostles were credited with saying, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they knew where they were going. And they knew that the people that had executed them were going to have to pay the ultimate price at some point. But they knew that if they would just have, if they could forgive them, maybe they would reach out to God. Our job is going to be to love people, forgive them when they do wrong to us. Paul and, Paul and Silas are praising God in the Philippian jailer and singing songs in the middle of the night when the earthquake happens. And they say, all the prisoners are here, nobody's left. Paul gets shipwrecked on his way to Rome and he tells the centurion, nobody will escape. You'll have all of your prisoners. Nobody will die. And sure enough, all the prisoners were still there when they got done being shipwrecked. How did that happen? God. God made it happen. And God was able to touch the lives of Darius people because he made great works. Be ready. Watch God. Be ready to show God's power. God wants to still work miracles. Be ready to pray for people who need prayer. If they need to be healed, pray for them. Will God automatically heal everybody we pray for? No. But you know what? You pray for somebody and they get healed, they're going to know God has power. God has all the power that he has ever had because he doesn't change. He created the world at the beginning of this. He's healed lepers. He's, he's protected people. He's given life. He's healed, healed the blind. He's done all these things all through the Bible. He is still in the business of doing miracles. He has not forgotten how to do miracles. He hasn't got weak. All right? If you don't believe it, read the book of Judges sometime and see how many times they questioned, where is the God who did all these miracles? The same thing we, in this lifetime, are seeing a lot of Christians say, where is the God who did the miracles of the Old Testament and did the miracles of the New Testament? Right here, waiting for us to have enough faith to ask? Just as Gideon goes, you know, where, God, you're talking to me, but where, where have you been? You're, you, you supposedly did all those miracles in Egypt. You, you dried up the Red Sea. We talk about it all the time, but where have you been lately? And God showed him where he was and did great miracles for him. God is waiting for people to be bold enough to stand up and say, God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is waiting for people to have enough faith. I love praying for people to get healthy and be, and be healed. I have seen great miracles happen in the health department. I've seen a man who was on the heart transplant list get taken off the heart transplant list. And he was up like number 10 on the list. And all of a sudden, the next Sunday, he came running up and down in the church. He was so excited that he'd been, been healed. I've seen people in major breathing issues that have been prayed for that had their breathing all of a sudden calm down. I've seen people who have had severe migraine headaches be prayed for and all of a sudden be able to just get up and do work again. God is waiting for us to have enough faith to pray. We're praying for souls to get saved, and I hope you're expecting people to get saved when we're praying for those people on the list. God moves when we pray. 
And we get testimonies all the time of how God has moved in people's families' lives where they've been totally separated from their, from their family and, and they get saved. And maybe at first it pushes their family further away, but as they see God in you, they start getting drawn closer to closer to God. And it's a wonderful thing to watch God move. And it's a miracle when somebody gets saved. Don't ever belittle somebody getting saved. The angels in heaven rejoice when somebody gets saved, we're told. We should be rejoicing no less. You know, I think there's parties almost all the time in heaven because people are getting saved all the time. There's a perpetual party going on in heaven because of salvation. And that is going on. And when we get there, we'll be able to join in on those parties, people getting saved. And you know what? If we don't die and we get raptured, we're going to have one great big party because we're at the wedding supper of the, of the Lamb where we're his bride going into one of the best feast that you could ever imagine. You, can you imagine God prepares that feast? I've been to a couple good feasts in my lifetime. Lots of food, lots of good food, but it won't hold a candle to something God has prepared. A seven-year feast where the food never runs out. And we get to enjoy a feast. We think, we think that uh, the feast in the Bible that talked about being a year and a half were some pretty big feasts. God puts on a feast for the marriage of his son and for his son's bride, us. That is going to be a feast that is going to be beyond anything we can imagine. And it's coming soon. Coming soon to a channel near you. <laughs> but it should be that way. It really should be that way. We get excited. There are people who believe that God knows the number of people that need to be saved before he returns. And, that, and I don't have any doubt that that probably is true. God says when, you know, five trillion people get saved and all of, all of time I come back, you know, and it may not be that high, but he goes, when I hit this number and I know what that number is, time is done. I've got the last person who's going to be converted. And he says, now is the time should motivate us. Let's go out and save people. Maybe we can help them get to that number. Maybe we'll lead that last person and we'll all go home with that last person and we were the one that led, led them to the Lord. You know, I, and I'm, and I'm kind of joking about it, but I'm also being very serious about it. God has a period when he says, it's over. No more. The church is taken out. Satan gets to reign for seven years. Still reigning on a leash. But he gets to reign for seven years and do things a lot closer to what he wants to do. He'll kill 66% of the population of the world so that they will all spend time in hell with him. He gets a lot freer hand than he has right now. He doesn't get the totally free hand, otherwise he'd wipe everybody out. But he gets a lot freer hand and there will be a lot of people that die during that period of his reign. And the chaos and the evil that will reign we think it's bad now, put no restraining influence of the church. No Christian saying what you're doing is wrong. No church saying what you're doing is wrong and watch how bad things get. There will be no redemptive quality. Nothing good being said. All good will be bad and if it's, in, if it's bad, it'll be called good. It will be the survival of the strongest and you will try to find somebody to protect you if you're still alive during that period of time. Or you will be the strong one trying to protect everybody. 
and other strong people are going to be trying to take what you have. It will be a miserable time to be alive with nothing good to look at. Now, God will have his, his missionaries out there. The 144,000 will evangelize. They will be leading people to Christ. But it's going to be a hard life. The, the people that get saved during that time will be beheaded. They will lose their lives for God. What a way. We just have to turn to Christ, and we don't have, we don't have to die. We may live to a ripe old age or live to the rapture, or God will take us home, or he'll let us be martyred. But the good news is, even when we're martyred, I think Stephen was a great example. He lifted up his eyes and said, Behold, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. Not sitting. Stephen was being welcomed home. Jesus stood off the seat and said, Welcome home. And I truly believe that the moment Stephen looked and saw Jesus, he never felt another rock coming his way. He says, Father, forgive them, and he gave up the, the ghost, and he just went home. When and if we have to face death, it'll be the same thing. God will show himself to us. He will give us the grace to go through it with perfect humbleness and reality. Maybe he will show us. I, I do believe that most people, if not all people, see a glimpse, a split second before they enter into eternity of where they're going. And your, and your morticians pretty much say the same thing. They see people with very peaceful faces, and they see people that are every part of their body is completely rigid and terrified. I think that what we see is that split second before we die, while our, before our spirit leaves the body, we see our destination. Can't prove it, just except from things that they have said. But, and we see it in Stephen. We see it in a number of people that saw heaven. That see the gates of heaven before they die. And they have perfect peace when they die. Because they go, I knew I'm going there. There it is. All I've got to do is walk through the river of death. And I'll be on the other side. And I'll be in heaven. That is our goal. This is why Paul said, I count everything as light. I'm content with much and with little because it is nothing compared to heaven. He had a full understanding that no matter what happens on this world, no matter how bad we think things are in our life, if we are saved, this is nothing compared to what we'll spend all of eternity doing. And we need to call, you know, like Paul said, these light afflictions. Because he matched it up to heaven and said, it's nothing. Is that our goal? Are we looking at our life and saying, the light afflictions that I am going through are nothing? And it's kind of amazing, because you'll talk to people, and it's amazing how many people will try to point out how tough your life is. You know, they'll go, well, this is going on, this is going on, you know what, I've been comparing it to heaven and God, you know, and sometimes I don't like them pointing out because I've totally been oblivious to it because I'm looking at God and, and heaven and they're trying to tell me how bad my life is. And I'm going, God is still in charge. And I've been enjoying it. He's given me peace that passes understanding and my eyes are focused on him and heaven. I'm not worrying about this life. And this is where we grab my verse, Romans 8, 28. 
all things work, out, work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He has a plan and all things will work good. May, sometimes I'm hanging on by the knot at the end of that promise and saying, God, I don't understand this, but I'm holding on to the promise. And we look and he, and he shows us how everything is turning out good. This is the blessing of being a Christian. The peace that passes understanding that will keep our hearts and our minds. And as I've talked about that in the Sunday morning, a peace that passes understanding keeps our hearts, our emotions, and our minds, our thoughts. Minds are fairly easy. We get into God's Word. Keeping our mind is fairly easy as long as we stay focused on the Word. Our emotions, that's a whole nother story. When we have perfect peace in our emotions, life gets easy. Because it's usually our emotions that will drag us down. God, I just don't feel like I'm having anything good. God, I just don't feel like you're here. God, I don't feel like you're blessing me. God, I don't. And God says, quit worrying about your fears. Trust in me. Believe my word. And put your emotions where they belong under the word. We cannot allow emotions to rule our life. We cannot get rid of emotion. Emotions are going to hit us. Satan uses emotions all the time with us. I get mad, I get angry, and it's an emotion. I need to step back and say, God, I'm not going to let this emotion ruin me. When we live in our emotions, we get into all kinds of trouble. I am just so mad, I'm going to smack somebody and I get in trouble. Yeah. There are many prisoners out there that got mad and ended up in prison, even though they weren't the one that started it, but they were the one that got caught. And they were the one that went overboard. And they got even. And getting even put them in jail. Many times that'll be happened. We'll hurt somebody. Maybe we'll end up, maybe we'll just hurt them really bad. How many times have you said something to somebody that was hurt, that was very hurtful? You know, and they got hurt. And they're probably never going to listen to you about God after that because you hurt them. We all have been hurt by somebody's words at some point in our life. Words are awful. And words stir up emotions. And they can make things get bad really quick. We cannot live in our emotions. We must put our emotions under the word of God and under his authority. Knowing that we can't necessarily help him. I am going to get angry. I am going to get lustful. I'm going to get envious because that's my emotion. But what do I do with it? Do I put it under God's word and, and hide it? Or do I feed on it? If I feed on it, I'm in trouble. So we want to be careful how we live and follow God's words. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to be lights shining for you and drawing people to you. We ask that if somebody listens to this that doesn't know you, that they will turn over their life. They will recognize they're a sinner. They will confess their sins and, and ask you to forgive them and come into their life and change you and that they will totally turn their life over to you. And we just thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, 
make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.